Well, voice projection has never been one of my strong suits, so I'm glad that I don't have to shout from the pulpit this morning in order for you to hear me. So as Jeff prayed, we do praise God for that provision, electricity being back on. Uh, We're starting a new sermon series today, and it's one that's going to be a little different than what we're used to over the course of the summer, going to be preaching sermons that give an overview of an entire biblical book in one sermon. So uh, one, one method of uh, what's called expository preaching, and that, that would be preaching that is driven by the original intent and meaning of the biblical text One method is to systematically work through a biblical book, passage by passage, right? And that's often what I do when I I preach. But expository preaching is not limited to a certain amount of text. So, So the meaning and intent of a Bible passage can be studied whether you're looking at a single phrase or verse or paragraph or an entire biblical book all at one time. So, so what I'm going to be doing each Sunday this summer is preaching an expository sermon, but one that covers an entire book instead of a selected passage within that book. And, and there's, there's three things, as I was thinking about this, there's three things that I hope will, will come out of this series. First, I, I hope that by giving these overviews, it will, it will give all of us kind of an additional tool to use when we are reading through these biblical books on our own. So when we, when we have a grasp of the, the big picture message and themes of a book, I think it makes our study of the smaller details that much more fruitful. And, and one of the things I would encourage you throughout this summer would be, uh, this morning as we're going to go through Ephesians, to read through Ephesians this coming week. If you don't have kind of a, a plan or, or something that you're already regularly doing for reading the Bible, I would, I would encourage you to maybe think about that. Now, Ephesians is a shorter one. That's only six chapters. We'll get some longer ones that'll be a little more of a challenge to knock out in a whole week. But, but I would encourage you, if, you're not, uh, if that's not a regular rhythm in your life uh, at this point, to maybe think about that. Say, okay, well, we've just, just heard a, a sermon on the overview. Now I can kind of go more in depth by reading it during the week. So, so that, that's one of the things I hope will come out of this. Second, I hope that we'll be challenged this summer through our interaction with different types of biblical writing within both Testaments. Because when you read through the Bible, it's not all the same kind of literature. Within the Bible, there's historical books, there's wisdom books, prophetic books, there's narrative books, there's letters, there's some books that jump back and forth between some of those things, and, and, and they're all meant to be read differently. And, and so jumping from one style to another each week, hopefully will get us more in the habit anytime we're reading anything in the Bible of, of identifying the type of literature it is, which again will make our, our Bible reading that much more fruitful. And then third, I, I hope that by jumping from book to book, we'll, we'll see even more clearly how all 66 books in the Bible tell a grand overarching story 
about God and his work in the world and his work in our lives. That they're not just 66 books that were just all put together. That there's a, there's a big story being told there. So hopefully we'll see that as we're kind of going back and forth. So, so that's my plan for the summer. As I said, I've not done something quite like this before, so uh, we'll do it together and see what happens. But to get us started this morning, as I said, we're going to begin with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, to introduce this letter, I wanted to tell you about my sophomore year in college at Indiana Wesleyan University. Um, and it was kind of fun as we were out of town last week, uh, my family and I, we were able to visit. Uh, Megan and I both went to school there, so we got to visit our alma mater and walk on campus again and uh, kind of re- remember some of, the, some of the good times, the memories that we had there. During my sophomore year, I, I lived in Scripture Hall, and I know that sounds like a holy dormitory, but the people who donated the money to get their name on the outside, their last name was Scripture, so just being transparent about that. Um, but anyway, th- this particular uh, dormitory was a suite-style dorm, so, so the suite in which I lived that year was an eight-person suite. And it consisted of uh, a living room in the middle, and then there were four bedrooms off of that, and then, and then a large bathroom off of that that we all shared. And, and what, what really made the situation unique was the seven other guys that I lived with my sophomore year. We, we were all friends who lived together in the freshman dorm the previous year, but we all hailed from different parts of the country. So uh, my friend, my roommate Daniel, was from Virginia, so he was our East Coast guy. Uh, There were three guys from Michigan, but all very different parts of Michigan. And if you're from Michigan and you want to say where you're from, you know, you do this, right? So so we had uh, Mason, who was from Traverse City, which is kind of way up here. We had Brandon, who was from, uh, he was from the Ann Arbor area, so kind of down here. Then we had Justin, who was from the Upper Peninsula, so he went like this. And then he was up here, (laughs) way at the top, Sault Ste. Marie. And we had Josh from Ohio, Eric from Kentucky, Mark from Minnesota, and me from Illinois, all living in a dorm room in central Indiana. It was just kind of interesting. Uh, And like myself... Many of those guys were sports fans, and so it made for quite the experience since we all tended to root for the teams from our home area. Uh, And there was essentially always a rivalry game going on uh, in our dorm room, especially since most of us rooted for Big Ten teams in college, and so it was like every week, you know, my team against your team or something like that, and it really, really was a good time. And one of the things that made my sophomore year so much fun was that even though we were all different in our sports team loyalties, and, and we let each other know about it, right? <laughs> we would sure rub it in when our team won. But we were all buddies, and so our friendships united us together, even though we wore different team logos on our shirts and hats, right? There was something deeper than our fandom, something greater, something higher that united us together. And so somehow all of us eight got along really well and had a good year together. Now that's admittedly a shallow example, but I think it does paint a picture of the unity which is meant to be displayed within God's church. And unity 
is the main theme about which Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. So just some real quick background on the letter. Uh, It was written to the church in Ephesus. That's why it's called the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus was the capital in the Roman province of Asia, so it was a pretty important city. Uh, And many believe the letter was intended to be read not just in Ephesus, but, but then also passed around to all the other churches in in that area that were started out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Um, The letter was probably written by Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome during during about 60 to 62 AD. So we're talking 25 to 30 years after, uh, after the ministry of Jesus. And while specific details aren't given, there seems to have been some division or some disunity which was showing itself among the believers, and, and not just in Ephesus, but, but within the larger church as well. A common thought was that this disunity stemmed from the fact that God's church was comprised of both Jewish background and Gentile background believers. And then we know from the books of Acts and, and Galatians especially that, that this was a significant situation that was addressed in the early decades of the church. And it's likely that that this Jewish-Gentile tension existed within the churches in and around, uh, the church in Ephesus, the churches around Ephesus as well. Now in his letter, Paul also, he also addresses relationships between church leaders and the saints, between uh, husband and wife, parents and children, masters and servants. So so there's no shortage of, of differences among the believers that could have led to disunity among them. And as Paul sought to, to address this problem, he did so in, in two main ways. First, he, he reminded the believers of who they were, especially who they were apart from Jesus, and how the unifying work of Jesus was accomplished within them. He spent time reminding them of that. That's what we see in chapters one through three. And then second, he gave practical application on how their unity ought to be both maintained and put on display for all to see. And that's what we find in chapters four through six. So unity is the the driving theme of this letter. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to Ephesians with me if you haven't. Um, In the Pew Bibles, it's page 976. As I said, in the the first three chapters, what we see is Paul reminding the believers of the work of God in their lives. And Paul is quite clear that that this unifying work is, is the result of all three persons of the Trinity working in unity together. In many ways, it's the unity of the Trinity that's being brought into the world, and especially within the church. And so in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, what we see is God the Father is the one who, uh, according to his purpose, has chosen and predestined us to be adopted into his family. And the family theme is one that, that permeates this entire letter. His plan and and his purpose, as stated in verse 10, is to unite all things in heaven and earth together in Jesus. And and in case that seems like a lofty goal, 
uniting all things in heaven and earth together in Jesus. The end of chapter 3 states that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. So bringing about unity amidst such great diversity, uniting differing people together in Christ, that's just a taste of the Father's incredible power. So we see God the Father, his purpose, his work. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is consistently presented as the one in whom this unity can be found. Unity that has been purposed by God the Father. It is through Christ, that's a phrase that's all over this letter, through Christ that this unity becomes reality in the people of God. Chapter 1, verse 7 states that, that we have redemption in Christ's blood. Verse 9 states it's the Father's purpose that is being set forth in Christ. Um, and, and, and listen as, uh, listen to Jesus accomplishing this unity. This is in chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, I, I, I've said before, when, when, there's so much depth to what took place on the cross. So many things were being accomplished in that act. One of the things was that hostility was destroyed and replaced with peace. In Christ, all are welcomed into God's family. They're built into a dwelling place for God's spirit. They become fellow citizens of God's kingdom. All are given access to God the Father in the one Holy Spirit through the work of God the Son. That's all being accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. So in Christ, God brings about a unity which would not exist apart from his saving, reconciling work on the cross. We are unified in Christ. And then Paul also presents... God the Holy Spirit as enacting this unity. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers, reminding us that we all have the same inheritance in Christ. Um, he's described as the spirit of wisdom and revelation who reveals to us the mystery of how God brought about this unity and how it ought to be lived out in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit who unifies believers together in Christ. So what Paul presents to us is, is we see all three persons of the Trinity, they are, they are purposefully and actively involved in the unity of the church. And Paul saw it as vital that the believers remember this work of God in their lives. And in fact, because it seems that some were ignoring it, or maybe some had, had been taking that unity for granted, he also reminded them of who they were prior to that work of God. 
So in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10, we get a clear picture. Paul reminds them, gives them a clear picture, and, and we're included in that as well, but, but who they were before God's work and how they were transformed by God's work. So look with me at the beginning of chapter 2. Right? He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The believers in and around Ephesus in Paul's day needed to remember who they were before Christ, before God's work. And we can say the same for us, too. We need to remember who we are, not just in Christ, that's important for sure, but who are we if it were not for Christ? Same thing, we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. So apart from God, Paul says, we live in the passions of of our flesh. We are carrying out the desires, sinful desires, of our body and mind. In other words, we're, we're living for ourselves apart from Christ. And it's quite obvious from studying human behavior that when we live for ourselves, unity is elusive. I mean, all we got to do is look around and say, yep. <laughs> when we are living for ourselves, unity is elusive. We see that in our context today. Selfishness is an enemy of unity. Pride is an enemy of unity. And so I want to read uh, chapter 2, verses, verses 4 through 10. <clears throat> it's a pretty famous passage. I'm sure we've all heard it, uh, <clears throat> read this and heard it multiple times. But it's one in which because of our Western way of thinking, we probably read this exclusively from an individualistic perspective. It's just we're, we're raised in that, in that way of thinking, and so that, that's how we typically read this. And it, and, and it does note the sinfulness of the individual. It does note the work of God in the lives of individuals. But as I'm reading verses 4 through 10, pay special attention to the corporate way in which Paul talks about the work of God taking place. So this is chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a lot of we and us in that passage there. Now, individual Christians are united together in the fact that we were all dead apart from Jesus and have all been made alive in Jesus. Paul makes sure to say twice, it's by grace we are saved. It's not our own doing. It's not our own works. It's God who does that in us. So no matter the person, to be alive in Christ is to be united together with everyone else who's been raised from death to life only because of the work of God in them. 
They're united together in that. And so, so uh, you know, thinking of the context then as it pertains to Jews and Gentiles, th- th- there was a time when only Jews were able to claim participation in God's covenants. It was still by God's grace, right? In his love, he chose them to be his people, but, but they were the ones uh, they were the ones chosen, and there were those excluded under that old covenant, those who were Jews and those who were not Jews then. There was a difference there. Now, in Christ, as Paul writes, the dividing wall has been destroyed. It's been abolished. We've already read that. The two groups are no longer strangers and aliens. They are now fellow members of God's household in Christ. They're united together in that. And so the first half of Paul's letter is him reminding the believers of who they were apart from Christ, who they were before Christ, and how through the work of God in Christ, they are united together. And that, that, is, a, that is a powerful, powerful thing as we think about it. God bringing people together and uniting them, ones who were, who were once very much apart. So that's the first half. And then the second half of Paul's letter, verses, uh, chapter, chapters 4 through 6, it's Paul giving instruction on, okay, so, so how do we live then as those who are united together in Christ? Yeah, going back to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, Paul said that the believers used to walk in trespasses and sins. Chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul transitions to applications, he says that the believers who are united ought to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So not walk in trespasses and sins, but walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Their calling to be unified in Christ. He urges them to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. At the beginning of chapter 4, he, he proclaims that all believers are, are of one body. They are indwelt by one spirit. They are called to the same hope. They worship one Lord and God, having one faith displayed in one baptism. I mean, Paul is just hitting it over and over again. We are, we are one. We are united together in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that every member of Christ's body is exactly the same as every other member. Right? That, that's not what Paul's talking about. A, a physical human body is not constructed in that way. Every part of our body is not just like every other part. And the body of Christ is not that way either. I mean, Paul speaks to the futility and folly of that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul said there, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? So, so it's not that the body is all uniform. It's that the body in its differences are unified. And there's a big difference there between being uniform and being unified. We are all unique individuals who are united together in one spiritual body in Christ. But because we continue to live in a fallen world, because we are still battling our sinful nature, there continues to be temptations toward conflict, temptations toward selfish behavior. The, the, the unity of the spirit is not naturally and effortless, effortlessly maintained. There's work involved there. And so in light of that, Paul gives a lot of instruction about our relationships with one another in the final three chapters. And the commands that he gives informs how we ought to interact with one another as people who are united in Christ. They're instructions for us as believers. 
So for example, in, in uh, chapter 4, and at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul, Paul speaks about relationships in general between believers. He says, he says the old self, the one dead in transgression and sin, that old self that used to walk in those ways, that must be put off. Paul says that, that, that's prior to Christ. That, that's before he has worked in our lives. We've got to put that off. So it means that, that uh, selfish, unity-destroying actions have no place among believers. And he, and he goes on and lists some things, uh, things like sinful anger, uh, stealing, corrupting talk, bitterness, wrath, slander, malice, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, drunkenness. I mean, <clears throat> those things all distract from and destroy the believer's unity in Christ. It, it, it's not just about living a moral life, right? Sometimes we focus exclusively on morality. And, and those things Paul mentioned are opposed to the nature of God, and so they are immoral, those things that he listed, but, but they also destroy unity when they find their way into relationships between believers. So if we are ever tempted to think that our sinful actions are our own business and they don't affect anyone else, we are greatly mistaken, greatly mistaken. We are wrong. Let's just say we are wrong if that's how we think. Sin in our lives negatively affects the unity within the church body. That's why Paul says, put it off. It destroys unity. And like Paul urges the old self to be put off, he urges the new self to be put on. So this means that, that the, the selfless, the unity maintaining actions, those ought to be prevalent in the lives of believers, in relationships among believers. So, so again, things that he lists, things like speaking in truth, doing honest work, edifying speech, kindness, tenderheartedness, love, thanksgiving, corporate praise of God, submission to one another. Those are things that, that maintain and, and project the unity of the Spirit that God has performed within us. Where those things are present the unity of the Spirit, it's, it's not just there. It, it, it's some, it then glorifies God because it's God's work within us. But then it's on display for the whole world to see. And it's a proclamation of the gospel message as the church lives in that unity. And so Paul kind of talks about some general relationships, principles that, reply, that, that apply to all relationships, but then he, he talks about some specific household relationships as well, the end of chapter 5 and beginning of 6. He talks about the unity of believers in the marriage relationship. He says that that, that is maintained as husbands and wives reflect the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So as, as wives respect and submit to their husbands and as husbands love their wives with the same sacrificial love that Christ showed the church, then the two truly are united together as one flesh. And that unity is then, is then present and displayed for all to see. Uh, the unity between parent-child relationship is maintained as children obey their parents and as parents lovingly bring up their children in both the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Man, I mean, how, 
how hard it can be for me as a dad to keep in mind how, how my, my decisions as a dad are meant to maintain and display unity in Christ. And how quickly I can forget that when my focus shifts to my own selfish desires. If we continue on, the, the unity of believers in the master-servant relationship is maintained as servants perform their duties transparently and as masters treat their servants as they would want their own master in heaven to treat them. And, and it's worth noting here that we can easily become uncomfortable with the fact that Paul doesn't speak overtly about abolishing all forms of slavery. He doesn't write that here. But we must not miss that what Paul spoke was indeed revolutionary. These are revolutionary words in that culture. And so we can't gloss over that and say, well, we wish, Paul, you would have said it a little differently than you did. He is proposing something radical as it pertained to the master-servant context in that day. And so, again, chapters 4 through 6, all that, all that Paul wrote there was focused on maintaining unity in these various relationships among believers. Even the final teaching section in chapter 6 about the armor of God, that is grounded in this overall theme of unity. I mean, you, you can argue that for the entire letter, Paul has been trying to get believers to understand that they are unified together in Christ, not enemies of one another. And he then ends by saying, okay, well, here's who your real enemy is. It's not your brother or sister in Christ. Right? That, that, that's not who we are truly battling against. It's not people. It's not flesh and blood. He says it's the spiritual forces of evil. That's who, that's who we're in battle against. We don't fight against our fellow saints, Paul is saying. We stand firm fighting against our enemy, and we pray for our fellow saints. So even that famous armor of God passage, it's grounded in that theme. Unity in Christ among believers. So again, the main point of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that as believers, we must recognize that we are united together. We're united in Christ through the work of God performed in the person of Jesus. Through that work, we've been given new life. We're brought together with our brothers and sisters into God's family. And as a result, the way in which we view one another, the way in which we treat one another matters deeply because either we are eroding the unity of the Spirit or we are maintaining the unity of the Spirit, which is secured through the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, our context is different than than the church in Ephesus. We're, we're not dealing with uh, Jew-Gentile tensions in our day. But there are tensions that can lead to division among us, right? I mean, there's all kinds of differences that we have. There, there, there's differences in preferences. We have differences in, in passion, differences in discernment, uh, politics, doctrine, economics, race. I mean, all sorts of things we, we, we can have different ideas in, and, and it can cause division among us. If we go back to the end of chapter 3, that, that abundant power of God that Paul talked about at the end of chapter 3, it doesn't show itself when all the differences among God's people disappear. 
Right? That's not the abundant power of God. The abundant power of God gloriously shows itself within the church and in Christ when God's people are transformed and their differences are laid down in submission to something greater. Not that the differences disappear. It's that they are submitted to something greater, which is unity in Christ. You know, as I, as I said at the beginning, the, the story about my seven roommates uh, in college, that doesn't rise to the level of what we're talking about today. But there's something good about, about eight guys who are passionate in their sports preferences being able to lay that down in view of something greater, being, being friends, being fellow brothers in Christ. And for as much difference as there was among uh, the eight of us that year of college, th there's differences among us here today, even more so because there's more than eight of us here. So those differences are present. There's differences present with, uh, between us and others outside of this wall, believers who are not part of this specific local church body. But there is a costly unity that was purchased on the cross 2,000 years ago that, that does unite us together in Christ. All people who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior are reconciled to God. We are brothers and sisters in God's family. Doesn't mean we agree on everything. <laughs> Doesn't mean that we never have to have difficult conversations about sin. There's things that, that, that have to be addressed at times. But in light of God's work in our life, may we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that can be tricky, right? That can be tricky to know exactly what that looks like every time, but that's what we're called to. God's people living in that way you know, God's people living in the unity of the Spirit, united in Christ, that's always been a powerful picture of the character of God and the nature of God. That has always been true. But in our incredibly divided context today, when we just think about our own country, man, doesn't it, doesn't it seem like there's so much more division lately than there used to be? The unity of the Spirit within the body of believers has the potential to shine even more brightly in, that, in our context today. Has the potential to proclaim something great and wonderful to a world that desperately needs to know about God. In a world that is just divided by people who are, who are you know, shouting at one another, right? Looking for differences, seeking to win at all costs. In that kind of a context, the church body can stand out like never before. And, and we're called to that. Now, it's not in our own power. It's not because we're better than anyone else. It's because of, of the work of Christ in our lives, his unity through the cross. So may we not miss that chance. May we, Eureka Bible Church, be a beacon of light that displays not just unity for unity's sake, but unity that comes from God, that puts God himself on display. Let's, let's maintain the unity of the Spirit to the glory of God and to the benefit of all those who are lost in sin. And again, that, that could be a tricky road to walk. That could be difficult at times, but God's power is at work within us. 
And he's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. So it's not even close to an impossible calling. It is a quite possible calling that is certain if we allow the power of God to work within us. That's Ephesians. That's, that's what Paul wrote to the church and, and I think probably to the surrounding churches and to us today because it's in our Bible. So I would encourage you this week, uh, you know, that's the overview, six chapters, it's a chapter a day and you can miss a day in there and I would encourage you to, to read through Ephesians with that, that kind of overall uh, theme of unity in mind. Allow God, allow the Spirit to speak as you do that. Be a challenge for this week. Uh, would you stand with me? Let's come to God together in prayer. Give him praise for this unity that he gives to us. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and uh, I'm grateful for your work. Grateful for your work in my life individually, but, but in our lives collectively. I even just think about the business meeting that we had this morning, that, uh, that we can come together and that we can, that we can uh, in the unity that you've given to us, pursue common goals um, and, and even have a unanimous vote, God. I mean, that, that in and of itself is a proclamation to, uh, to your unity that you've, uh, uh, that, you've, that you've brought us together in you. I praise you for that. And, and God, we're, we're unique. You've created us all just as you wanted to. And so uh, we have differences, and that's good. And God, would you guide us as we seek to be one body together in you? In those times of tension, help us to uh, empower us to, to live in that unity, to maintain that unity, to, to continue to pursue it. God, in the times that we need to come to one another in forgiveness, uh, ask for forgiveness, would you, uh, would you prompt us in that way? And God, I just thank you for, for this local church body. I thank you for the larger church body and the work that you do. Apart from you, we, we walk in trespasses and sins. We are lost and hopeless. But in you, we are brought to life and we are brought into your family together. And I praise you for that. God, as we continue singing your praises now this morning, May, may our hearts, may our minds reflect on that. God, may we praise you for the countless reasons that we have to praise you, but especially for this work of unity that you do. We pray this in your name this morning. Amen.